0: Would you pray with me? Father, we have learned well, I hope by this point, in the book of First Peter that we are exiles. We are not home here. As much as we love so much about the world, there is a lot that we hate about living in this world. And those things should remind us that this is not our permanent home. And so Lord, remind us of that once again. Make yourself, make eternal life precious in our sight this morning as we consider your word. Open our ears, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You can turn to 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna be continuing through the book of 1 Peter as we have been for some time now. My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm just one of the members here, I'm not a pastor or anything uh, here at Emmanuel Church, I'm just a member, and, uh, but it's my privilege this morning to be able to share with you the Word of God this morning, and I hope that our time over God's Word will be profitable for each one of us. So we're continuing in First Peter, we're in chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 12. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I'll have three observations from this text this morning. They're not novel or creative in any way, but I believe they are faithful to the text, and I think that they will bring to light the things that God would have us see in this text. First, I want us to look at our expectation of trials. Second, I want us to look at our perspective on trials. And third, I want us to look at our reaction to trials. Now, each one of those points starts with the word our. So when I say our there, I mean specifically God's people. I mean people who have professed faith sincerely in Jesus Christ, repented of sins, turned to Christ, are believers in Christ and people of God. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know, and this may sound mean or morbid, but I don't mean it that way at all, none of the comfort here that's described for people going through trials really applies to you. Um, This is a message specifically for God's people, Um, and as exclusive as that may sound, uh, I think you'll see throughout the sermon that that, that's a pretty clear deduction to make from this text and from this book as a whole. So first, let's start by looking at our expectation of trials. God's people should expect trials, but let's start by defining our terms here. What do I mean by trials? Because that's a word that can be used to describe a lot of different things. Uh, It could be used to describe cancer or losing a job, or bankruptcy, or maybe miscarrying a child. Any of these things could be called trials, and rightly so. However, the scope here in 1 Peter, especially in this text, doesn't seem to be that wide. Um, I, I think what we should rather think of here when we think of trials is things like insults, malignings toward you, slander, even perhaps physical harm, torture, or even death. I think That sort of span, as long as we're talking about things that are inflicted upon you specifically because you're a follower of Jesus. That's what Peter has in mind here. Not necessarily calamity or disaster that befall all people, but trials, tribulations, and persecution that befall God's people alone. Now, when someone says something like that, when someone says, here's what Peter means, he means this, not that. What Jesus is really saying here is this. You should always sort of perk up a little bit when someone says that as a listener. You should think, okay, where's where's he getting this? You should at least look at the text and go, "Mm, okay, yeah, seems like that's what Peter's saying, or... I don't know. It seems like what he's saying is exactly what you said he's not saying. Um, You should be that sort of listener. So when I say something like what Peter means here is persecutions, not disasters and calamities, you should think, okay, is that what Peter means? Does he not mean calamity? Why doesn't he mean calamity? Why don't we think he means that? Um, So let me take just a moment and explain to you why I think it is that this is just referring to, when we see trials, referring to persecution, insult, slander, torture even of God's people. First, and all of these are going to come from within the book of 1 Peter. First, uh, this exile theme that keeps popping up in 1 Peter. Uh, really, the predominant theme underlying the whole book of 1 Peter is this exiled status of God's people. Thinking of God's people as a people that aren't yet home. Exiles even within hostile territory. Not just in impartial territory, but in hostile territory. Um, How do we live rightly as exiles until we get home? This comes up in the first verse of the entire book. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.1, he's writing to those who are, quote, elect exiles. This sort of theme provides the perfect context for Peter to address mistreatment that comes upon exiles as they live in this sort of hostile environment. Okay, so this exile theme that sort of overlays the whole book makes us think when we get to this text and we read about the fiery trial, okay, I wonder if this is any kind of trial or tribulation that we go through or if this is something that we suffer particularly because we're exiled people in hostile territory. Second, this, when Peter talks about suffering throughout the book, he typically couples it with this idea of verbal persecution or spoken calamities toward you. Several times in the epistle, when Peter's talking about suffering, he brings up some sort of verbal element to the trial. So here are a couple of examples. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he warns them that the world will, quote, speak against you as evildoers. The world is going to speak against you. That's the sort of trial and suffering that you'll experience. Same chapter, When he's urging Christians to look at Jesus and his example, how he suffered and they should suffer like he did, he says of Jesus that, quote, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So again, that spoken element of Jesus' suffering wasn't all just physical suffering that Jesus endured. There was a lot of mocking, derision, insulting of the Lord, and that's not meaningless It's not like just because he went through physical suffering that the the insults really didn't mean that much. Peter doesn't seem to think so. He focuses in on the reviling that Christ received and his silence in the face of such insults. In chapter 3, Peter characterizes their suffering as being slandered and being reviled. And in chapter 4, Peter notes that God's people will be, quote, maligned for their good behavior. And then in our text, we see him bringing up the fact that Christians will be insulted in the name of Christ. So, you see, not only do we have this exile theme that sort of governs the whole book, but also throughout the book, we see Peter talking about suffering over and over again as if it's a spoken sort of barrage that's hitting God's people. Verbal insults, verbal slander towards Christians. So those aren't small things. And I think that that pattern through the book should inform the way we read this text. And then finally, third thing that that makes me think pretty solidly that this is talking about that sort of trial. There are consistent reminders from Peter throughout this book that you should only take comfort if you're suffering as a result of your good conduct, not as a result of your bad conduct. So Peter over and over again wants to bring up this idea that if you're suffering because you have acted sinfully, don't look for comfort here. Here. But if you have suffered as a result of your doing good, brother, sister, let's talk about some comfort for you. So that sort of emphasis, that if it's gracious when you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. But what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Or elsewhere in the book, Peter says that if you do make a defense for the hope that's in you, you should do it with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience. So that your, quote, good behavior can put to shame those people that slander you. And again, we see it in our text. Suffer as a Christian, not as an evildoer. Okay, so for those reasons, I think there's a a pretty solid foundation here to see this theme arise. You're exiles. You live in a foreign land. You're going to be persecuted in various ways. You're going to be maligned and slandered, maybe even physically harmed and beaten. Make sure that it's because you're doing good, which brings God glory, and not because you're doing evil or your misbehavior, which brings you shame. I think looking at the book as a whole and looking at our text here, it's obvious. Peter is talking about types of persecution against God's people, not necessarily disasters and calamities that befall all types of people. Does that make sense? So we think of trials here. We think of suffering. These are words I'm going to be using a lot today. They're going to pop up in our text. I don't want you thinking of all types of suffering. Because again, I think what we see consistently through the book of 1 Peter here is that when we talk about trials and suffering here, we're talking about, okay, I'm living as a Christian, I'm living in hostile territory, and I am receiving some sort of negative treatment because of my devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what I have in mind. Hear that when I use the word trial or suffering this morning. Okay? Now let's look back at our text. First verse. Beloved, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Again, the first point of this sermon is the expectation that we should have of trials. And it's clear from the opening verse here, we should indeed expect trials. So in this first point, I want to address some of you that are here that may be thinking, well, rats. I sort of wish we were thinking about cancer, bankruptcy, financial hardship. I would, I would love to receive some comfort on those trials that I'm experiencing. Um, but I, I look at my life, and I don't necessarily see a lot of persecution that is befalling me because of my followership of Jesus. Um, that won't be all of you in here. Some of you right now are acutely aware of relationships that are strained um, words that have been spoken against you harshly, specifically because you're a follower of Christ. But some of you may be here and think, that's not really something I'm experiencing right now. I, I, I don't know how this sort of trial really is extremely relevant to me right now in my life. Well, allow me to say three things on that, on that note. First, they are coming. These sorts of trials will befall every Christian in this room at one point or another. I can say that solidly because the Bible says so. The Bible by no means teaches that every period of a Christian's life will be full of persecution. It's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that every waking hour of your life as a Christian is going to be full of people insulting you, maligning you, uh, even harming you physically because of your, your following of Jesus. But it does guarantee that if you live in a godly manner in this world, it is something you will experience at some point. And give an honest look at the world around us right now. Let's just sort of take stock of the culture around us. Think of news headlines that you've seen, social media posts that perhaps you've seen the past week. It's not really difficult to imagine which directions this sort of persecution and trial might come from in the next years, is it? I think it's pretty obvious. Um, To illustrate this, let me give you just, I'm just going to give you four statements, okay? And these are just ground floor basic biblical beliefs, okay? These are just, these are extremely uncontroversial for the vast majority of church history. Um, I want you to think as I say these, imagine what sort of insults might be hurled in your direction for believing these things. Okay? So as I give you these four basic Bible principles, just biblical truths, pretty elementary stuff, think, okay, what sort of things, if these were heard in certain contexts, might cause people to just lose it? Here's one. God exists, and he has spoken in the Bible. Pretty... 101 sort of Christian doctrine right there. But again, think of, think of what sort of insults that might garner you if people knew in the street and in the town square that you believed that. Two, God created mankind, male and female, in his image. Again, we're not even out of the first couple chapters of the Bible here. This is just basic stuff. But again, think of how controversial that is. Three, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Again, imagine what sort of things might people say in reaction to hearing that sort of statement. Four, sex is reserved for a married man and woman. These are clearly taught in the Bible, each of these four. But just think of the list of of insults and slanders those beliefs might garner you. Now, not 10 years in the future, right now. Deluded, unintelligent, moron, coward. I got all those from Richard Dawkins book The God Delusion. Transphobic, prejudiced, anti-women's health, anti-women, control freak, hate monger, closed-minded, xenophobic, bigot, racist, sexist, homophobic. You don't believe in science, you believe in a sky fairy. You're just full of hate. Here's one. Quote, The great unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. Not what I would have seen coming. From a barbaric Bronze Age text known as the Old Testament, these anti-human monotheistic religions have evolved. These are the sky god religions. They are literally patriarchal. Hence, the loathing of women for 2,000 years in these countries that are afflicted by this sky god and his earthly male delegates. End quote. That is from celebrated historian Gore Vidal. Christian, the world is not going to condemn you saying, you're too good and we don't like that. The world will literally condemn you because they genuinely believe you to be deeply evil, hate-filled, loathsome, reprehensible, morally repugnant. A good fictional example of this sort of treatment can be found in a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, have read that book, whether in elementary school where you didn't actually read it, or later on as a Christian when you read it and loved it. Um, In the book Pilgrim's Progress, there's a point where Christian, the main character, and one of his Uh, companions named Faithful they go through a place called Vanity Fair those of you that love the book The Pilgrim's Progress will know exactly where I'm going and um, it's it's a heartbreaking scene in the book really the people of Vanity Fair are given over to a lavish debauched sort of lifestyle Christian and Faithful are very different from the people of the fair as they're traveling through it and the people of the fair take notice they don't dress like us they don't talk like us They don't don't like the same things we like. So they're automatically suspicious of Christian and faithful as they travel through the region. So they're arrested, and they're brought before a court presided over by the judge, Lord Hategood. Here's a list of some of the charges that were brought against faithful by the mob at Vanity Fair. See if these accusations might be leveled at you, today as a Christian, in this current social climate. They're vile. They're barbarians. They're fools. They condemn our actions, which condemns us. They're pests because they told us that we're still in our sins. They think they're so much better than us. Here's one. They're divisive and hateful. That's one that gets leveled our direction pretty often, being divisive. The people mocked Faithful, beat Faithful, threw him into a cage. But Faithful's silence and patience throughout all this caused the crowd to just escalate in their fury. The jury decided pretty quickly that he was guilty of these charges and deserved to die, quote, the most cruel death that could be invented. I won't detail out how they killed him, but just suffice it to say that Faithful was gruesomely killed. The sick irony of all this is that it is the moral delinquents of Vanity Fair that claims some sort of moral high ground in order to kill this good, decent Christian man. And they do so because they genuinely think that he is repugnant, he's vile, he's wicked, he's reprehensible. What has he done to deserve these charges? He just acted differently than them, spoke the truth in love to them. He never lost his temper, never yelled, never insulted them. But his good conduct, there's a Peter theme, his good conduct was such that it, It it heaped condemnation on them. And the the Bible's clear on this. The reason that darkness hates the light is because it knows that it's darkness and and it doesn't doesn't comprehend the light. It, It doesn't like the light. Its deeds are evil and it knows it and it doesn't want the light telling it so. And this is what happened to faithful. I don't know if you get to spend a lot of time around people who don't know Jesus. Most of you probably do. Whether family members or co-workers But if you do, you'll notice that things can be all fine and dandy. Friendships can be maintained for long periods of time. But if one of your unpopular beliefs comes up somehow, that can all be compromised quickly. Wait, you believe what? I'm sorry, say that again? You you believe the Bible? I thought you were an intelligent person. These are things that have been said to me. And then the censuring begins, perhaps, the mocking, the scolding, even. And it's amazing. In a culture that encourages sexual promiscuity, seeks to destroy family structures, promotes wholesale violence, even to be exposed to children, and celebrates, celebrates the destruction of millions of unborn lives, this culture of death calls Jesus evil considers Christians abominable. woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. In this sort of climate, please understand, I don't say this to take some sort of self-righteous stance toward the world. I say this to say, please understand Christian, persecution, if it has not landed at your doorstep, is coming. It's here, in fact. Slander, insults, maligning, mocking, censuring, it's happening every day. But even though we may feel absolutely indignant at the wickedness that abounds in our world, we must simultaneously rejoice as we ourselves are insulted. We have outrage that God is dishonored, joy that we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Also, if you're one who finds yourself here saying, I ah, just persecution doesn't seem like it's really in my context right now, consider the concept that whenever persecution is brought up in the New Testament, it's often closely linked to living a life of evident godly conduct. So, I think it's perfectly appropriate and fair that if you find yourself saying, persecution, this is not something that's ever really happened to me, I'm never really insulted, or I don't feel like coldness in any of my relationships because of my devotion to Jesus Christ, I think it's a fair question to ask yourself am I living in a manner that's sufficiently godly to warrant any sort of persecution? If the Bible promises that at some point the godly will be persecuted, and I have never been and don't really see myself being persecuted, it's a fair question, am I living in a godly manner? Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that you're living some openly debauched lifestyle. Uh, Consider maybe something in a conversation is said that's woefully wrong about God or the gospel? Do you find yourself saying, let, let me, can I push back on that? Or can I, can I ask you about that? Or do you find yourself saying, hmm. thinking to yourself, well, if I bring something up, it'll be a big conflict. I don't want to deal with that, so I'll just nod. Um, maybe an opportunity is provided in a conversation to to present a a robust yet gracious view of the Bible's sexual ethic. Conversation comes up about uh, same-sex marriage or something like that. And you have the opportunity to maybe bring up some things that you believe about that topic. But boy, you know if you do, that could really stir up a, a hornet's nest there. And you may find yourself, I don't want them to think I'm, I don't want them to think that I'm unintelligent or uninformed, or I don't want them to associate me with other Christians that they might have known and had a bad experience with. I'll I'll, I'll just sort of say, well, that's interesting. Um, Those sorts of reactions in those situations, and I don't want to be too harsh, they indicate shame at being a Christian. They indicate a, a hesitancy at identifying with Jesus, with the Bible, With fellow Christians, with with, with churches, that there's this this shame that you might feel about wearing that jersey. That's something to be worried about. That's something to be concerned about. That's something to examine your heart about. Uh, Now again, just because you're not experiencing persecution at the moment doesn't mean that you're not living a godly life. Again, persecution will come occasionally, not necessarily always but it's something, it's something worth asking. That if you never find in your life a situation in which you're insulted or you feel maligned for the sake of Jesus and your uh, allegiance to him, ask yourself, am I living in a way that shows shame about my connection to Jesus or am I living in a way that I, I'm proud, I'm open, I, I'm evident in my godly conduct? If the second is true, persecution's gonna come your way. And then briefly, uh, to close this first point. If you don't experience persecution yourself, or if you're not experiencing it presently, know that it is guaranteed fair for the Christian. And remember that persecution is a present reality for many of your brothers and your sisters around the world right now. Pastors, Christians, recently, even in the West, have been hauled off to jail. Christians are being hunted in parts of the world right now. It's a Sunday morning. Somewhere in the next 24 hours, or the last 24 hours, however the time zones fall, there are Christians who have had to gather in secret. There are Christians who have had to sing, listen to the word of God preached, meet with one another, fellowship with one another, under the reality looming over them that at any point someone could bust in that door and take us away. And we might never see each other again. That's happening right now around the world to your brothers and your sisters. Let this inform your prayers for them. As you pray for them, let texts like this that talk about trials and suffering and persecution don't just have a a small and narrow view of your own Christian experience, but think, okay, if God's been kind to me. I'm not going through this right now. I think I am living with godly conduct in an evident way. Let me pray for my brothers and sisters who are experiencing this sort of persecution right now have them in my thoughts and prayers so Christian our expectation of trials should be that they are coming number two our perspective on trials so first we looked at, we we should expect trials they're coming, they're here and in parts of the world they're here in in a vicious way second, what should be our thinking about trials what should be our perspective about trials how should we think rightly about them well It's pretty clear in the text. Let's look back. Look at verse 13. Instead of being surprised, you should instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So verse 13. When trials come, it's pretty clear we're supposed to rejoice. We're not supposed to be downcast. We're not supposed to despair. We're not supposed to be outraged that the culture has turned against Christianity. I see this all the time. That, that, that I see it in my own heart. There's this element of surprise at what a sinful and wicked world is, is willing to do and say about God, about His people, about, about things that are morally clear. Don't be surprised. Expect it. And if it falls at your doorstep, rejoice that it has done so. Note the language in the next verse. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Does that sound familiar? Kind of run through the little Bible archive you might have in your head there and think, okay, insult, blessed, blessed, insult. Where where have I seen that coupled together before? Because I think Peter is definitely drawing on on a New Testament text here. The New Testament couples these exact words, the same Greek words together in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5.11, the New American Standard translation reads this way, blessed are you when people insult you. People insult you, you're blessed. Same exact thing we have here in 1 Peter. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Same exact Greek words, blessed, insulted. It is the desire of Jesus our Lord that when we receive insult for aligning ourselves with Him, we would consider ourselves blessed. When you're insulted, when you're maligned, when you're slandered as a Christian, and perhaps that anger starts to rise up in your chest, you don't revile back, you don't insult back, you don't name and call. Instead, you worship God for blessing you with fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Unless you think that unless you feel inadequate for comparing being insulted with the suffering of Christ, you're comparing a few little insults with being crucified, remember, Peter has instructed you to do just that. In fact, the suffering that Peter's readers seem to be experiencing when he writes this letter seem to be primarily verbal sufferings. So it is exactly slanders, insults, malignings that Peter expects you to view as fellowship in Christ's sufferings. You should read the crucifixion account, read about Jesus' torture and his crucifixion and his death, and you should think, me too. Just like my Jesus. I'm going through the same thing. That feels a little inappropriate, doesn't it? To compare your being insulted with Jesus being crucified. But Jesus expects you, Peter expects you to do just that. It's like Jesus said, the servant's not greater than his master. I'm being persecuted just like he was. That's a commanded connection that you're supposed to make. You're expected to feel solidarity with Jesus and his suffering when you are insulted on his behalf. Remember, Peter is someone who will tell us in chapter 5, he was an eyewitness to Jesus' sufferings. And he's the one who tells you that when you feel insulted, or maligned, or slandered on Christ's behalf, you should see that as being part of Christ's sufferings, in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Because a lot of times we can imagine that Jesus' reaction would be, Are you serious? Do you see what happened to me? And, and you're getting a little insult from your coworker, a couple of jabs from a family member at the Thanksgiving table, and you're going to compare yourself to me? Are you serious? It's not the Lord's reaction. On the contrary, when you're insulted in His name, your Savior's reaction is to commiserate with you, to identify with you, to suffer alongside you, even. Jesus counts the sufferings of his people as his sufferings. I brought this up in sermons before when I've had the opportunity to preach here. And it's because I find it to be so surprising and so comforting. When Paul is on the, the Damascus road, in his conversion experience, the Lord says to Paul, Jesus says to Paul, what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Saul ever persecute Jesus? No, we don't know that before this point, Saul's ever even met or encountered Jesus. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you doing this to me? How can he say that? Saul never did anything to Jesus. Saul did something to Christ's own bride. More so, Saul did something to Christ's own body. Christ has called his people his body. And will the head say to the body, I have no need of you? What you're experiencing, that's not my problem. I'm the head, you're the body. I don't care what's happening to the arm, I'm the head. No. Christ commiserates with, Christ feels the suffering of his people such that he calls their persecution his own. When you are insulted, Christ would say to your accuser, why are you insulting me? Why are you slandering me? So Christian, find comfort in the fact that when you are insulted, you're commanded by your Lord to feel fellowship with him in that. Don't feel like it's a small thing to be insulted because that's exactly what Peter focuses on here. Christ counts your insults as his own suffering and when Christ's people suffer, they get to count it like unto the suffering of Christ, and they are blessed when they do so. The text bears this out. Um, I mentioned earlier the connection between verse 14 and the Sermon on the Mount. Insult, blessing. When you're insulted, you're actually blessed. In this text, Peter gives us a little bit of an inside look on how that works out. How is it that when we're insulted, we're blessed? Peter tells us. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Next word, because. Okay, so what's coming here? A justification for saying that. It's as if the reader said, well, Peter, how is it that I'm blessed when I'm insulted? Well, reader, Peter says, let me tell you. It's because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Interesting phrase there, the spirit of glory. I have taken two semesters of Greek, so I'm not going to get up here and pretend to be some sort of Greek expert and dazzle you with my knowledge of Greek, which is small. I will say this the translators here, uh, the commentators, uh, are a little bit divided on how this verse should be translated. Because again, what we're reading here, we're reading an English translation of what Peter wrote in Greek, and that's important to know. Um, suffice it to say that where the commentators agree, everybody seems to kind of hit this same bell, whatever other differences they may feel when they look at this phrase, the spirit of glory and of God. All of them seem to go to Isaiah 11. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Um, It's where the prophet Isaiah foretells of, quote, a branch of Jesse that will have the spirit of the Lord rest upon him. See that language reflected in our text? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a pretty unique Bible phrase. And so all the commentators go, okay, the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you, just like in Isaiah. When Isaiah says in chapter 11, at the beginning of the chapter, that there will come a branch of Jesse, talking about Jesus, on which the Spirit of the Lord will rest. Another place we see this referring to Jesus is at the Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. What happens? We've got Jesus coming up out of the water. God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, and I'm, I'm well pleased in him. And then what does the Spirit do? It says the Spirit in, in bodily form like a dove descended upon Jesus and did what? Rested on him. John's account, I think it is, that includes that detail. The Spirit rests on Jesus, John says. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon this branch of Jesse, Isaiah says. Peter, who's already made reference to the fact that he witnessed all these events in Jesus' life, and he's already made reference in the first chapter to the prophets and the fact that they were foretelling the coming of Jesus, brings up the same sort of wordplay but the Spirit resting on someone. But here, the Spirit's not resting on Jesus. Who's the Spirit resting on? The insulted Christian. The maligned Christian. The suffering Christian. So, the very same Spirit that rested on Jesus in his suffering also rests on us in our suffering. And the same Spirit, Peter says, will secure for us a solidarity in Christ's glory if we experience solidarity with him in his suffering. So if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. Surely, these are sufficient reasons to rejoice when we suffer for the cause of Christ. The Spirit of God rests on us just like it rested on him. We're blessed in this deeper experience of union with Christ. I have fellowship with him now in his sufferings in a way that I didn't before. I know Christ better For having been slandered as an evildoer in his name. My communion with Christ is enriched when I'm insulted on his behalf. Why? I'm a fellow sufferer with him. We experience a kinship in our suffering that we didn't before. When I lose family relationships because of my stance for what Christ has said, I'm just like Jesus. Jesus. Jesus said he, he came to bring a sword and, and, and family members would even turn against each other on his behalf. And that's what I'm experiencing. What? Deeper communion with Jesus, therefore. So, Christian, rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in the insults that you receive on his behalf because they gain for you a closer kinship with your Lord. They win you a better relationship with Jesus than you had before. An insulted Christian has a deeper relationship with an insulted Christ. Before moving on to the final point, and I'll close with that final point, I just want to make one comment about verses 16 through 18. Where Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with the household of God, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the wicked? I just want to make a comment about that before I move on to my final point. The reason I won't spend as much time here is because I believe that this theme has already shown up clearly in 1 Peter. Like I said earlier, throughout the book, persecution is often linked to the idea of living an open, godly life. And alongside that, it's often mentioned that By the way, if you're suffering as a result of living a disobedient life, don't look here for comfort. If you're suffering as a result of living in disobedience, or as Peter says, if when you sin and suffer for it, you endure, comfort isn't your move. Repentance should be your move. If you're suffering for your misbehavior, your move shouldn't be, oh, comfort me, Jesus. Your move should be, Jesus, I'm sorry. I I, I repent. Um, just as sharing in the suffering of Christ now means sharing in the glory of Christ at the judgment, so living in an ungodly manner now means facing the fate of the ungodly at the judgment. Don't deny Christ out of shame when suffering comes. On this note, one commentator warns, it's better to stand by one's faith now, even though it results in suffering, than to deny Christ for present relief only to suffer much worse in the coming judgment as one who has denied and rejected Christ. And don't forget, Peter knows of what he speaks when he speaks about being ashamed of Christ, denying Christ. Recall the events of Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion. What was Peter's move? I don't know him. Uttering oaths, I don't know the man. So Peter knows of what he speaks when he speaks of people who are too ashamed to... Broadcast their allegiance to Christ. And so He he, he warns us to, to live in a godly manner, an openly godly life, with good conduct before the world, and then not to align ourselves with those who are ungodly because their fate at the last day will be undesirable. Finally, our reaction to trials. So, what are we to do when we're in the middle of a trial? We're being insulted. We know how we should think about trials. We know that they're coming. We have tried to prepare ourselves for it. It's here. I'm being insulted. I've lost a relationship. I've lost a job promotion. I've been physically harmed because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. What do we do? Let's look back at our text, the final verse. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Two things that we're supposed to do apparently. Do good, trust God. That should be the Christian reaction to suffering insult, slander, maligning in Christ's name. Do good. Remember, Peter over and over again emphasizes the importance that Christian, if you are being insulted, it's got to be false. If you let it be true, then you bring shame upon yourself and dishonor upon the name of Christ. The insults that are leveled against you, the charges that are brought against you, Christian, for God's sake, literally, let them be false. Let your conduct be good. Do good. He emphasizes that again here. Trust God, trust your soul to God, but keep doing good. Let your conduct be pure. If we're to entrust our souls to God for safekeeping, And Peter warned us earlier in chapter 2 that worldly passions of our flesh wage war against those souls. So entrust your soul to God. Note, worldly passions, your, your misbehavior, your disordered desires, those wage war against your soul, which you're supposed to be entrusting to God for safekeeping. It's imperative, Christian, that you do good, that you not be an evildoer, that you be a doer of good that you be one whose conduct is unreproachable. So do good. If you find yourself in the middle of a trial, if you find yourself insulted, don't be tricked into reviling back. Don't be tricked into firing those shots back across their bow. Don't threaten, don't insult, don't malign as you have been. Instead, do good. If you do offer a defense, which Peter allows for, Let it be a reasoned and gentle defense of your hope, not of your reputation. So don't don't try to justify yourself. Don't don't get aggravated and and bite back at those people who have insulted you. Offer a reasoned, gentle, kind defense of the hope that's in you. This is all Peter's language, not mine. Offer a gentle, kind, reasoned defense of the hope that's in you, and then entrust your soul to God. So with that family member, that co-worker, Don't feel like you've got to win the day. Provide the defense and then trust God to do the work. That's the last thing I'll say. Trust God. When you are looking for a correct reaction to suffering, that reaction is to do good, number one, and number two, to trust God and trust your soul to a faithful creator. If your perspective on society, on the world around you and the culture as it's operating is merely social, political, political, Or economic, you have no other reaction than rage or retaliation at the the sorts of slanders that you might receive. If you're just seeing this as a social game or an economic game or political game, why not retaliate in that case? But I would urge you, as a Christian, look to Christ. Peter says here, Christian, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And not two chapters ago, he said of Jesus, when Christ suffered, quote, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See how similar that language is? How the, the Christian's reaction to suffering should be the same as Christ's reaction to suffering? Christian, entrust your soul to a faithful creator, just like Christ entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Christian, if you're being slandered, maligned, or insulted, feel the liberty of just trusting God to do what's right. He's faithful. He judges justly. This is how noble martyrs have proclaimed God's goodness from the burning stake. I was going to recount to you the story of one particular martyr, an Anabaptist man in the Reformation era named Michael Sattler. Um, a marvelous story. And uh, he quotes these very same things from his position as a martyr. Um, I'll let you look that up on your own if you would like to. I would urge you to. It's um, jarring but edifying. These martyrs trusted that whatever their God ordained was right. And I want to note that much of this sermon and, and this text really has dealt with trials that are mostly verbal. But Christians, don't be deceived. God's people have often been hated to the point of violence and death. That's the story of church history, largely, is the persecution of a faithful remnant of God's people, even to the point of death. If you listen closely to those who now loudly oppose Christianity, you can hear the same desperate sort of malice in their tone that could easily burst that dam in our context. So right now, our our suffering, our persecution will be primarily verbal insults, slanders against Christians. But don't be deceived, the story of much of the church has been violence and even death. So Christian, if that becomes the case, if we must contemplate losing our goods, our families, or our own lives, what then? we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Even if it's our bodies that feel threatened, it is our souls that we misentrust to God. Christian, you're going to die. One way or the other. I am going to die. But let us not forget what is supposed to be the great hope of the Christian, that just as certain as our death is, is our resurrection. Yes, you will die. You will also rise. The very hands and and arms and legs and eyes that go into the grave will be resurrected, glorified, made new. Christ arose, therefore you must rise with him. The body may be killed by earthly powers, but God and his Word still abide. So let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. I want to close by quoting a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. Uh, This is from his book Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. a great name for a book. He's writing here concerning Christian suffering at the hands of the wicked. Here's what Brooks says. Quote, All the afflictions which befall the saints only reach their worst part. They reach not nor hurt not the saints' best part. The Apostle Peter says, none shall harm you. They may thus and thus afflict you, but they can never harm you. The Christian soldier will ever be the master of the day. He may suffer death, but never conquest. Afflictions may kill us, but they cannot hurt us. They may take away my life, but they cannot take away my God, my Christ, my crown. Christian, let the world do their worst. We may trust God to keep us eternally safe. Let's pray. God, we don't want to experience persecution. We don't want our relationships to be strained. We don't want to be insulted. But Lord, much of that comes not from good motivations, but from selfish desires to be perceived as prestigious or respectable. We want to be liked. So God, instead of having that self-centered focus, Lord, may we focus on you, on the sufferings of your son, on the glory that awaits us if we suffer with him, God, we are exiles. You've made that clear to us again and again through this book. Lord, we ask you to gently remind us of that. And Lord, as you do, as we are reminded of our exile status, Lord, I pray that we would entrust our souls to you. We wouldn't scramble, we wouldn't panic, but we would feel the the peace that becomes a Christian. Bless us, in Jesus' name, amen.